Last week we finished up the book of 1 Samuel uh, together. Uh, originally, uh, the book of the books of First and Second Samuel were uh, one one book. Uh, they've been separated in our uh, our English Bibles, um, and so that's one reason why we've uh, usually we go from an Old Testament book to a New Testament book. But we want to make sure we finish this uh, this uh, book together because we left off at the death of Saul. Remember, one of the things that we've seen throughout this book of First uh, Samuel so far is that. Uh, this book is to prepare the hearts and minds uh, of God's people to anticipate, to look forward to, and prepare for the coming of God's King and His kingdom. And we're left at the end of First uh, of Samuel wondering, uh, when is that kingdom going to come? Uh, will the king ever make his way to the throne? Uh, and as we find ourselves in uh, similar situations many times, as we look around at our, uh, our life in this world, uh, sometimes we may wonder and struggle, is Jesus really on the throne? Is he in control? Is his kingdom ever going to come and be fully established? And is he going to make everything right? That may come especially close as we look at the church, as we look at God's people and their encounter the depth of our sin and our struggle to follow and rest and trust in Jesus. How does dealing with and responding to the sin that we see among the people of God uh, play a part in, in our preparation for the coming of God's King and His kingdom? That's what we want to look at uh, this week in Chapter 1 of the book of 2 Samuel. Um, we're just going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 this morning. Um, if you want to follow along in one of, your, one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 254. So please follow along with me as we hear from the Word of God this morning. After the death of Saul... When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle. And also, many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. 
And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of Yahweh and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed? Then David called to one of his men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed Yahweh's anointed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your testimonies that you have given to us, your people. We thank you for their beauty and their perfections. We thank you for your righteous rules that you have given to us in your revealed word. Uh, We praise you for uh, your statutes, for your commands, for the way that you've laid out before us and point us to your great and mighty acts and works of redemption in the world. Uh, We pray this morning that you would open up our eyes, that we would continue to see and that you would reveal to us the wonderful, wonderful things that you have for us in your word, uh, that our way would be more conformed to the scriptures, that there we would encounter Jesus and be made more like him. It's for his glory that we pray. Amen. I want to look, there's two emotion words that are mentioned in this chapter, this this passage that we want to draw our attention to in relation to sin among the people of God. One is uh, the emotion of mourning, and another is one of fear as it relates to sin among the people of God. Mourning and fear. How are those two appropriate responses for the people of God as we encounter sin in our midst? as we prepare for the coming of our our King. So kids, if you want to follow along in your uh, word count uh, doing tally marks, you can do that this morning for for mourning and for fear uh, as we look at those those together. Um, First, let's look and see how an appropriate response that God's people should have to sin among us is... Grieving sin and its consequences among the people of God. Uh, Do you notice David's response here to hearing about Saul's death? Did it surprise you? Did it strike you as odd? Remember what David has been experiencing from the hands of Saul for the last 12, 14 chapters? Pursuit? Assault? Attempted murder. He's tracked David down wherever he can go, seeking to put him to death. He's lied to David multiple times, saying he's not going to pursue and attack him anymore, yet he continues. David has been fleeing and trying to to keep his own life safe and the life of those who are following him. Saul refuses to let go of... uh, 
of the kingship, even though God has removed it from him and said that it's passing on to David. Saul persists in his rebellion, and David continues to suffer at the hands of this wicked and evil man who has rejected God and who has rejected his king. You would think that news of Saul's death News of the end of Saul's kingdom would bring celebration from the mouth of David. That he would triumph and glory over Saul's fall. That he would send word out and announce it and proclaim it. Maybe even ridicule Saul and his uh, his wicked and cruel ways in his heart. I mean, that's the way our, our culture responds, isn't it? We love a good story of downfall, of tragedy, of scandal. Whether it's politics, or it's celebrities, or it's athletes, or it's just a rumor that's spreading around in your high school or in your workplace about what your coworker or your classmate or your teacher or your neighbor have done. We hear words of that and we love to celebrate it and proclaim it and gossip about it and tweet about it or put it on, on, uh, on social media. I mean, think about even our, our, our news organizations. There's, there's sections on news websites just about celebrity scandal and things that are going on. Is that really news? There's whole magazines put out about this stuff and we eat it up. We share it and we talk about it. it. Is that an appropriate response, especially in the midst of the church? For do we not do the same thing when we hear about scandal, the fall of a, of a pastor, sin and, uh, and, uh, and scandal in the midst of another church, uh, doctrinal strain and decisions that are made? What is our first response? Is it to wag our finger? Is it to to comment and draw attention to how horrible they are? How they're getting exactly what they deserve? How we're glad we're not a part of that church? Or to call and tell other people, can you believe what that denomination just did again? I'm so glad we left it in the 70s. But David here, His response is to do what? Look in verse 11. David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of Yahweh and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David here isn't just mourning for the loss of life, although that is a part of it. Remember why this is even going on. It's because of the sin of the people of God who rejected God as their king, who wanted Saul to rule over them so that they could have a king like the rest of the nations. God wasn't enough for them. He wasn't a fit king and ruler and savior and provider, and so they rejected him. And God punished them by giving them exactly what they wanted. 
And Saul persisted in his rebellion. And the consequence of Saul's rebellion was going to be the loss of his life and the suffering that the people would experience. And here we've seen it. This is David's mourning and weeping. Sin among the Old Testament church. The consequences of sin among the people of God for their rejection. It's Saul that he grieves for. Saul. His abuser. His enemy. Jonathan. His friend. The heir to the throne. The people of Israel who have up to this point refused to also acknowledge and follow David as their king. He sees them. They've lost the Lord's anointed. And David, like a good shepherd of his sheep, weeps and mourns for now due to the consequences of their sin. They are sheep without a shepherd And he mourns and he grieves. He doesn't boast about it. He doesn't ridicule and celebrate sin. When he hears and gets word that there's sin among the people of God, he weeps. And he seeks God in prayer on behalf of his people. Did you notice that? Look in verse 12. They mourned and they wept and they fasted. Fasting didn't just involve ceasing to eat for a period of time. It, It involved a humble crying out to God to do a work among His people, to restore them, to renew them, to refresh them. And here we see David in response to the sin that he sees, he grieves it, he mourns it, and he turns directly to God and asking Him, be at work among your people. Heal this people. Renew them. Turn their hearts to you. You notice David has been the one who has experienced the effects and the consequences as well of Saul's sin and the sins of the people. But David's focus in this moment in his own himself He turns to God and he's seeking God to work in the midst of his people. We need to remember that. As God's people, as we hear about sin in God's church, as even if it's a church that you would say is not a a true expression of the visible church of God, yet they still profess it, Is that not true of Saul? Saul wasn't a true follower of God. He rejected him multiple, multiple times. We've seen that over and over. Yet David still grieved because Saul, through his profession and his position, represented God to the watching world, regardless of whether they knew what was going on or not. He grieved and he mourned. Is that our response? When we hear of what's going on in churches around us, Other Christians who fall into sin and struggle? Do we grieve? Do we mourn? Do we pray for them? Is that our first response? Or is it to say, I told you so? Is it to say, look, look at what's going on again. What a horrible church. What a horrible leader. What a horrible pastor. 
No. We should grieve. We should mourn. Because notice, we see Jesus doing that, right? When Jesus entered into the world and He comes to the people of God and they're rejecting Him, His response is to mourn and grieve. For He he sees His sheep without a shepherd. The reason they're without a shepherd is due to their sin and their rebellion. And He has compassion and a heart for them. You might say, well, that's Jesus. Of course He should do that. I have a right to be upset. Notice here, it's not just David who mourns, is it? Look in verse 11. David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. Remember who these guys were who were with David. The ones who multiple times when Saul was close enough for David to take him out, they're like, kill him. If you won't, I will. Remember the one guy who was with him? He's like, I got a spear. It will only take one shot and I'll go straight through him to the ground. I won't have to do it twice. And David says, no. Yet here, as they watch the response of their king, their hearts have been changed. No longer do they look for revenge. Do they celebrate the demise of this one, this enemy, this wolf in sheep's clothing in the midst of God's people? They grieve and they mourn and they weep. Should we too not be those that respond as our king does? Who grieves and weeps and mourns over the sin that he sees and he experiences among his people? Others of you may be thinking though, but... You don't understand how I've been hurt by the church. How leaders in churches that I've been a part of have manipulated me. They've taken advantage of me and my family. Uh, They've lied. They've cheated. They've stolen. When I hear news of their downfall, I want to celebrate it. I want to proclaim how much they deserved it. And good riddance. It it gives me all the more ammunition to uh, to point again as I hear it. And I find out that it's not just in the church that I've been a, a part of and members of, but this is going on in churches all around the country and all around the world. So what I'm going to begin to do when I hear another example of, of failure and of sin within the church... I'm going to proclaim and announce it to to begin to attack the church and to tell everybody this is why I've rejected the church and I've left and I've fled and I've gone away from God's people. And you know what? You should too. I do not want to minimize your pain. The Scriptures do not minimize the pain that people have experienced and the hardship and harm that they Uh, come across in the midst of the people of God. It is not hidden anything of the hardship and difficulty that David has experienced. But notice, his response is not to attack the people. His response is not to flee and abandon and reject this sinful people. His response is to double down on pursuing as God and asking God to do a work in the midst of this people who desperately need Him. If this were not the case, would it have necessitated the death of the Son of God to redeem this people? 
We are a messed up bunch. So messed up that the only thing that could bring about our redemption was the death of the God-man. And part of the discipleship content that we go through as a church, one of the books that we look at uh, together is called The Enduring Community. It's about embracing the priority of the local church and seeing that throughout the scriptures and the importance of it in our own lives. The authors in there quote from uh, an elder in our denomination who says this, if Jesus loved the church enough to die for her, should we not love her enough to be patient with her? To mourn and to grieve over the sin that we find there? It's not going to be easy. It's not going to, uh, to, to be without cost. But that is what we see demonstrated and shown in this passage and what we see demonstrated and shown in the perfect king, the greater David, the true and full king who came to redeem and save his people. As God's people, if we are going to rightly prepare for and anticipate the coming of our king and his kingdom, then we must, as we encounter sin and its consequences among the people of God, our response must be to grieve it, to mourn it, and to call upon our God to do a work in our midst. But we would be very, very deceived if we only thought the problem was the other people sitting in these chairs, other churches out there, and forget that I'm a sinner. I am in desperate need of the grace and mercy of our God. Sin isn't just a problem for other folks, but the chief problem with the people of God is me. That leads us to the other response that we see here. It's not just mourning and grieving the sin that we see among the people of God. It's fearing. Fearing sin and its consequences in our own lives. Do you notice how David draws attention to that? Remember, the, uh, this Amalekite comes and he brings this report to David. But, but we know something that David doesn't. The end of chapter uh, 31 in, uh, in 1 Samuel. Uh, we know how Saul comes to his end. First, he asked his armor bearer to, to kill him so that the Philistines don't uh, uh, cause him to suffer and dishonor him any further. The armor bearer refuses because it says he was afraid. He feared greatly. So Saul falls on his own sword and kills himself. But here, this... Amalekite comes. Remember, the Amalekites are another enemy who if Saul, you got to think about this, if Saul didn't want to fall into the hands of the Philistines fearing they would dishonor him, why would then he turn and say he's going to give himself into the hands of Amalekite, another enemy of God's people? 
but also, we have a trustworthy narrator at the end of chapter 31 who has told us what has actually happened. And here we have the Amalekite who's coming and he's presenting this uh, story of what he has done and how he's encountered Saul. Saul has died, but he hasn't died the way the Amalekite says. The Amalekite did not take his life, but that's what David has to go on. And notice his response to the Amalekite in verse 14. How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed? Here he is boasting about what he's done. He's, he's seeking advantage and gain by proclaiming and announcing the sin that he's committed, thinking that it'll bring him advantage, glory, honor from David who's set to take the throne. He, he doesn't have any fear whatsoever to identify himself with this sin and to say, I have done it, and to announce it and proclaim it to other people. It's all too easy for him. In fact, it seems as if he's taking delight and joy in this, thinking about how it'll bring gain to him. And David says, how is it that you weren't afraid to do this? What about, what about us? How easy is it for you to sin sometimes? Do we just do it casually? Is it no big deal? Think about some of the sins that you continue to, 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 to come up in your life over and over and over again. Are there things in your life that you know God has called you not to do or certain things that he has called you to do but you're not doing that you just easily, like it's no big deal to go against God and his commandments, casually sinning and disregarding his commands and his purposes. It's not a a struggle. You don't wrestle with it. You don't battle, you just give over to it over and over and over again. Thinking, maybe you don't see it as being a big deal anymore. Maybe you think, oh, well, Jesus has already forgiven it. Why does it matter anymore? I can sin as much as I want. Or maybe sometimes you think about sin in your life and boasting and bragging about it might be a a means to you to gain advantage and status in the community that you find yourself in. There's great pressure in middle school and high school to do something like that. It doesn't stop in high school. I'm sure you adults face it as well in your workplace. But it's not popular to be one who walks in righteousness and godliness and purity before our God in our world. Many times it's not going to the extremes of our world that actually brings ridicule and persecution for the people of God. Especially that pressure you find in middle school and high school. And so in in order sometimes to avoid the ridicule of being the goody two-shoes, of being the one who you haven't done all of the fun stuff everybody else has done, you haven't gone as far with your 
boyfriend or girlfriend, you didn't get drunk at the last party, or you didn't cheat on that exam and get a ton better grade, or you didn't mock and ridicule the teacher. And so in order to avoid getting picked on, in order to try to gain a, a, a place at that table in the lunchroom, or to be among that set of friends, you begin to boast about some of the sins that you have done, thinking that it may gain you advantage or that they'll be happy with you, or that they will like you, or it will gain something for you. Here we see that is not what God has called His people to. We should fear sinning. Not just fear sinning, we should hate it. We should hate even for our name to be associated with doing something that is contrary to the purposes and the character of our God. But also we see here that we should fear not just sin, but also its consequences. Notice what David says to this Amalekite in light of his declaration about what he has done. How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed Yahweh's anointed. At first we may think, man... David sure went overboard here. But do you notice the question that he asked him before? He heard that he was a Malachite, and he asked him, where did you come from in verse 13? And he says, I'm a sojourner, the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. This means that this man and his family, since he was a, a young boy, had been living among the people of God. He'd heard the word of God. He knew the, the rules and the laws of God's people. He should have been aware of the place that God's anointed had among the people of God. And so when David heard this, he knew that this man wasn't sinning out of ignorance. He proclaimed, and even he's identifying that whether he did it or not, that seems to be what was in his heart. David had no way of verifying it, so he's going off of what the man says. And he says, due to this sin of lifting up your hand... Against to destroy Yahweh's anointed, death is the penalty. Your blood is on your own head because you've testified with your own mouth saying you killed Yahweh's anointed. These are the consequences. Rejection of God's anointed one. Lifting up your hand to destroy him. The wages of that sin is death, David says. And he justly enacts this on the Amalekite. We might say, though, that I've never done this. I've never sought to go kill God's anointed. I wasn't even around when Jesus was on the earth. How in the world could I do something like that? Well, in one way, that's right. You had no nails in your hand. You had no hammer. 
He didn't put Jesus up on the cross. But is not to reject our King and to want to live our lives our own way and say, I should be in charge? Is that not turning our hearts and our backs to our King? Is that not seeking to exalt ourselves over Him and saying, not necessarily explicitly with our mouth, but with our actions, what the cry of our heart is, is he shouldn't be on the throne. I should. I should be ruling. I should be reigning. And I'm going to do what I want. And I'm going to ignore Jesus. Our hearts show what our attitude is many times through to Jesus, our King. But... The scriptures in the book of Hebrews say this, not just about sinning against Jesus, but of ultimately rejecting him. Jesus has come, it's clearly revealed to us in the scriptures through the death and the resurrection of Christ that he is God's promised one. He is the King of all things, and He is the only Redeemer for sinners. If we hope to be made right with our God and restored to our proper place in this world and a relationship with Him, we must go through Christ. And to reject Jesus does not come without its consequences. Hear what the author of Hebrews says. Here, this, the author of Hebrews is speaking to people who were apart, visibly attending and worshiping with the people of God. But due to persecution, they were in a place where some of them were saying, I'm done with it. I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus anymore. I'm leaving him and I'm going back to what my life was like before. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away. So there he's just describing somebody who is participating in the visible life of the people of God. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Listen why. Since, through their rejection and turning away and saying, I am not going to follow Jesus. I'm not going to repent and turn to Him. They are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up in contempt. You see, to reject Jesus, the true anointed King of God, is to lift up your hand to destroy Him, is to, like the author of Hebrews says, crucify Him again and hold Him up in contempt. You see, if we are going to rightly respond to the sin that we see in our own hearts and the sin that we see among the people of God, then we must fear sin. We must fear it in our own hearts. Whenever we see it, we must repent of it and flee to Jesus. Because the consequences are great if we refuse to turn and run to Him. What was the consequences for the Amalekite? 
he was executed and struck down. The author of Hebrews says to reject Jesus is to crucify him again, to lift up your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. And the scriptures are clear that the wages of sin is death. And if we refuse to look to and humble ourselves and look to Christ and his sacrifice, his perfect life lived on our behalf, trusting and relying on his death, acknowledging that is what I deserve. I deserve to suffer eternally for my sin, my rebellion. Jesus, would you have mercy upon me? To reject and turn from him is to lift up your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. And it's as if you're seeking to kill and murder him so that you can gain advantage, so that you can rule. Hear the warning of Scripture. This is not a place you want to be. Fear. Fear greatly that consequence. While it is still today, as the author of Hebrews also says, and you hear the voice of the Lord saying and warning you to turn from your sin, do it. Turn to Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, you would call yourself that already. Mourn over sin. Hate it in your own life. And turn to Christ. Because it is only Him and the work of the Spirit in our lives that's going to enable us to continue to put sin to death that we find there. You don't need to fear bringing it up. You don't need to fear exposing it because there's nothing you're going to find in your life and in your heart when you take it to Jesus that His response to you in faith is going to be, it's canceled. I've forgiven that. Remember, I died on the cross in your place. And you are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We thank You for the hope that there is for sinners in our rebellion against Jesus. We need You to change our hearts. We need You to soften our hearts. May our hearts be more like Christ. May we mourn and grieve over sin that we see. May we fear it. May we hate it. May we flee to Christ in repentance and faith wherever we find it in our hearts and our lives. For Your glory, we pray. Amen.